Oil companies are currently bidding for permits to explore vast offshore areas of New Zealand. It's the second time in as many years the government has offered these permits, and they're hoping to expand the petroleum industry beyond Taranaki. But environmentalists fear a disaster will ruin New Zealand's pristine coastline. In this Radio New Zealand Insight, Steve Wilde looks at both sides of the oil debate. In the wake of the Deepwater Horizon catastrophe in 2010, as millions of barrels of thick black crude oil gushed from the depths of the Gulf of Mexico, a telephone rings in New York City. On one end is the President of the United States, Barack Obama. At the other is a somewhat stunned U.S. attorney, Michael Bromwich. This is the man President Obama hopes can overhaul the regulatory framework for offshore drilling in the U.S., Michael Bromwich has already cut his teeth on some difficult issues for the US government, including supervising the team of prosecutors that investigated the allegations of criminal misconduct involving government officials in the aftermath of the Iran-Contra affair in the 1980s. He's been called on countless times since then to deal with similar problems of corruption and wrongdoing, and he knew what President Obama was asking him to do would be tough. I mean, I was surrounded on the one hand by representatives particularly of smaller independent oil and gas companies that were very unhappy to have any of the rules changed on them. Uh, they thought this is one accident, it's one set of companies that was responsible for it, it doesn't have any larger implications for anything. So that was on the one hand. On the other hand, you had um, very articulate and very forceful environmental organizations that were saying, see, we told you, this is too dangerous an activity to allow companies to engage in. This is why we need to stop deepwater offshore drilling. That's why we need to stop offshore drilling of any kind, and we need to accelerate our move to an energy economy that's based on renewable resources rather than fossil fuels. I'm Steve Wilde, and in this program I look at New Zealand's expanding petroleum industry and what that might mean for the country, the economy, and for the environment. Here at the Sky City Convention Centre in Auckland, four giant movie screens show a sweeping view of New Zealand. The 500 delegates in the room represent some of the biggest names in the global petroleum industry. They've been invited by the government to come and hear what New Zealand has to offer. As the Minister of Energy, Simon Bridges, takes to the stage, he's backed by images of an exploration vessel towing seismic testing equipment in the waters off the Canterbury coast. A graphic is revealed comparing New Zealand to the massive oil-producing nation of Norway. 
It declares that New Zealand is ready for the global petroleum industry. The minister tells the delegates that New Zealand's enormous untapped petroleum resources can help underpin the economic future of this country. Our agenda is very simple. It's sensible development of our resources, both oil and gas and minerals, but certainly um, keeping the highest health and safety and environmental standards uh, at front and centre of this. Now, ultimately, what that means and what we want it to mean is more jobs and higher paying jobs. And I guess we see in a place like Taranaki high productivity, low unemployment, high wages, and we think that you know, if we can unleash some of that potential in other regional economies around New Zealand, that's you know, potentially very powerful in terms of jobs and those much higher paying jobs. The glitzy presentation in Auckland seems a world away from a wet grey day here in Dunedin's Octagon. But it was here two months ago that ashen-faced executives from Shell New Zealand looked on in stunned silence as a meeting to update residents and business owners was disrupted by local activists. We won't tolerate the This is an act of war. This is an act of war against the country. And we won't put up for it. We're here to defend New Zealand. We were singing the national anthem, asking God to help us. And how dare you shut ourselves? This is my city. It's disgusting. This is my So, as Michael Bromwich says, the two sides have staked their positions. One vehemently opposed to any further expansion of the New Zealand petroleum industry, the other a government who desperately needs the revenue from oil and gas to push its economic agenda. It's hard not to see where the environmentalists are coming from standing here on the beach at St Clair. Dunedin's white, untouched sands have been the playground for generations of citizens in this city. Within months, the big Texas oil company Anadarko will begin test drilling just north of here. And to the south, Shell is almost certain to drill its own exploratory wells as the potential of the Canterbury and Great South Basins comes to the fore. So who is right? The government and its bullish economic vision for the country, or the activists and their apocalyptic descriptions of black oil staining the nation's beaches. Well, a couple of doors up from Dunedin's Octagon, a fledgling group of protesters is meeting. Oil Free Otago was part of the group which busted the Shell Oil meeting. One of its members, Rosemary Penwarden, says 
The group needed that dramatic statement to be noticed. These companies have all the money, they have all the power, they have the government wrapped around their little finger, the government is bending over backwards at our expense. So we need to protest and we need to get loud and we need to get make people uncomfortable until we get listened to. This is a movement and it is only going to grow. But despite the meetings and protests of groups like Oil Free Otago, the chief executive of the Petroleum Exploration and Production Association of New Zealand, David Robertson, says the majority of New Zealanders are actually supportive of the oil and gas industry. But when we look at the opposition and we say, well, how big is the opposition? You know, what do people really think about oil and gas in New Zealand? Do, you know, do they really think that fracking causes obesity, that uh, someone told me one day? So we went out and we surveyed um, 1,200 people and uh, we did qualitative and quantitative analysis. And we found that there was a very small minority of people that were you know, strongly against oil and gas. There was a reasonably large section that were you know, sitting on the fence, I suppose, for want of a better expression. And then there was a very, very large group of people that supported oil and gas and the development of it. What I take from that is that New Zealanders make up their own minds about things. You know, New Zealanders choose their own opinion. And the, the research is telling us that people are saying, yes, we understand the importance of oil and gas to our economy. We understand the importance of oil and gas for energy security because we are isolated down here uh, in the bottom of the world. We've seen what it can do for Taranaki, and we think that it can be done based on the track record in New Zealand, which is outstanding that we can have our clean green economy and our, our clean green environment that we're all you know, so passionate about here in New Zealand and we can also have the economic benefits from oil and gas. Certainly in the regions of the country where new oil and gas exploration is underway, local government and business leaders are hoping for an economic spin-off. Invercargill's Mayor Tim Shadbolt is just back from a trip to Norway where he observed the industry there. He's positively beaming at the prospect of a similar industry setting up in Southland. What do you say to Shell when they knock on your door? Well, would you like a cup of tea? We are very hospitable. We, uh, Shell have been good in that they've held public seminars down here to explain exactly what they're doing, looking at the risks, looking at the benefits, and as a community we weigh them up very seriously. Um, we know uh, there is an element of risk, but you get that with dairy farming too. Any new industry that comes will have an impact on the environment one way or another. Uh, it's just getting that balance, and we feel that, again, Shell, at, in our local community, have been a very good corporate citizen. You're an old protester from way back. What did you make of that incident in Dunedin there with the protesters busting up that meeting with Shell? Well, I think any protest does help draw attention to an issue and makes people think about it. Um, we don't uh, need that kind of provocation down here, I guess, because we do make an effort at an international level to find out the facts to get the latest information, to look at the latest technology, and then we hold regular seminars on all areas of economic development in our province. So I guess that's why the majority, vast majority of our citizens feel quite comfortable with a new industry like this.
That's backed up by the Petroleum Exploration and Production Association's figures, which show nearly 90% of Southlanders are supportive of the petroleum industry setting up in their backyard. Things are more tempered in Dunedin, where the Deputy Mayor, Chris Staines, is taking a more cautionary approach. The Council hasn't had a vote to have a view. Um, around the Council table there are differing views. What we have done, though, is um, tried to encourage a free flow of information for our residents to actually understand what it is that's being proposed, what the risks are and what benefits or otherwise might accrue from it. Now that came unstuck a few weeks ago because Shell came to town and there was a meeting that was heavily disrupted. Well, I think it was rather unfortunate, and I think some of those who did the, did the disrupting need to think about whether or not they have the right to enforce their view on others. That meeting, while it was a, an invited group, was there to provide that group with a viewpoint from Shell. And they were prepared to answer questions, even hard questions, um, from that audience. What in fact then happened with the disruption was that nobody got anything out of it, and I think that's disappointing. Kieran Trass is one of the protesters who disrupted the Shell meeting in Dunedin. They called it a public consultation meeting, but they had it behind closed doors. So we walked into the meeting. It was a spur of the moment. It, didn't, it wasn't planned. We walked into the meeting and started demanding answers to questions and explaining to them that they were not welcome here. We had to force our way into the building to make our voices heard. Kieran Trass says he believes the government is breaking international law by allowing petroleum companies to explore New Zealand waters. In Belize recently, last month, there was, um, there was a, a successful uh, overturning of permits issued by the government. Now, how that actually happened is that the people um, requested a referendum and they got adequate um, votes to, to present to the government, we need to have a referendum. And uh, a large amount of people turned out for that referendum with 97% of them saying, we don't want this oil exploration, it's not worth risking our environment. Now, the question in Belize presented to the government was this. Did you undertake any risk assessment reports of the risks involved prior to issuing those exploration permits? And the answer was no. They failed to assess the environmental impacts. And on that basis, a Supreme Court overturned those permits and has actually deemed them to be null and void. Now, I believe the same situation exists in New Zealand. I have written to Simon Bridges and asked him an outright question. Did you assess the environmental impacts, your government, assess the environmental impacts before issuing those permits? For some reason, Mr Bridges won't answer the question. I put that question to the Minister of Energy, Simon Bridges. Well, there's no room for cowboys in New Zealand, and, you know, this is not development at any cost. In fact, I think with the Crown Minerals Act, which we passed in Parliament very recently, 
we now have some best practice regulations and a regulatory regime in this country where there is very high scrutiny and it's up front. So prior to a business being able to uh, get either an exploration and then uh, down the track, much further down the track, a mining uh, permit, they will be put through the ringer. We will have to be un understand very clearly that they have all of the systems, the equipment and the expertise to uh, prevent and contain any sort of issue health and safety wise and environmental practice wise. The Montara report also found the oil field didn't come within the bull's roar of sensible practice and that the blowout was an accident waiting to happen. Seven months before Deepwater Horizon, the Montara oil spill off the northern coast of Western Australia would prove to be a strikingly similar incident and a major wake-up call to both the government and the oil industry across the Tasman. During attempts to plug the leak, the West Atlas platform above the Montara well exploded in flames. It took 74 days to stop the oil and gas. But perhaps the most interesting aspect of the disaster was the Australian regulatory framework within which the owners of the rig, the giant Thai state-owned energy corporation PTT, were operating. The report into the blowout painted a sorry picture. It said the Northern Territory government's relationship with the company had become far too comfortable and amounted to a no-questions-asked approach. The inquiry report finds the Montara spill was entirely preventable, caused by a company breaching its own standards and a regulatory dog that did not bark. Unlike Deepwater Horizon, which fell under the very prescriptive US regulations, the Thai consortium was operating under the Australian rules, a performance-based system which relaxed its monitoring regime if companies proved they could operate without incident. Jeff Burns is the Australasian representative for Helix Energy, whose company was contracted to cap both the Montara blowout and the disaster at the Deepwater Horizon site, otherwise known as the Macondo Well. In the US they have a, quite a prescriptive regulatory regime. Um, in Australia we have a less prescriptive regulatory regime and it's more based on the uh, UK model and Montara happened in Australia and Macondo happened in the US so both these incidents occurred in quite different regulatory environments uh, so it, it appears that uh, fine-tuning the regulations um, has a limited effect it's the application of the regulations uh, that is the important factor if you've got regulation most of the regulations that you read old or the current versions are reasonably good it's the application of those regulations and ensuring that uh, the uh, companies are vigilant in applying them and assessing them and auditing them. That's uh, the important factor. And that's a point not lost on Michael Bromwich, who says in the end, countries can have as relaxed or prescriptive a regulatory framework as they like. He says in the end, it's the petroleum companies who need to ensure their own practices are safe. It shows what we all know, which is that no system is perfect. Uh, it takes uh, human beings um, who are doing the work, doing a careful job of doing the analysis, making sure that they make every effort to anticipate 
all the potential problems. So you do the most that you possibly can to prevent an accident to begin with, and then you are ready, you're fully ready, uh, with sort of containment capabilities and spill response capabilities to deal with an accident uh, that uh, could occur. Thirty-five kilometers off the Taranaki coast is the Shell Todd Oil Consortium's glittering prize, the Maui gas field, which at its height provided enough hydrocarbons to power 30% of New Zealand's electricity needs. The two platforms sit proudly in the ocean, but soon they'll be gone as the gas beneath the sea dwindles. Shell New Zealand is keen to explore new frontiers and its chief executive, Rob Jager, says safety of both workers and the environment is the company's number one aim. We have a minimum of two barriers in place in all parts of our, uh, our drilling activity. So we look at absolutely making sure that we stop any adverse impact from happening. And then we make sure that we, uh, in the unlikely event that something does go wrong, that we have ways to stop it from escalating. And that's no different whether it's oil or gas. And then finally, in the highly unlikely event that, that it goes wrong badly, we have those response activities, so the ability to cap it. Uh, there's now a lot of technology that, uh, that allows you to cap wells uh, and stop them from flowing, drill the relief wells, uh, and all of that technology will be brought to bear on, uh, on any activity that we will be doing. The giant Texas oil company Anadarko will spud deep water exploratory wells off the Oamaru coast and in the Taranaki Basin within months. I'm Bob Daniels. I'm Senior Vice President of Deep Water and International Exploration for Anadarko Petroleum Corporation based out of Houston, Texas. Bob Daniels says New Zealand's regulatory framework is among the best in the world. Uh, the regulatory environment here is robust. Um, they've done their homework globally. They have put in place a uh, regulatory regime that will allow operations to take place but held to a standard that would be best in class uh, for all the different activities. That suits us very well. That's how we want to operate. Um, and even if the regulatory regime wasn't there, that's how we're expecting ourselves to operate. So it uh, fits very well with what we'd like to do. And Mr Daniels insists he respects New Zealand's clean green image and his company is not here to create an environmental problem. I'm from the United States. I'm an outdoorsman. I love fly fishing, I love hiking in mountains, I love the uh, environment that the United States has to offer, and I appreciate it anywhere in the world that I go. I am not interested in um, doing anything that's going to harm the environment and uh, um, take away the pristine nature of uh, what New Zealand has to offer, and the company is exactly the same way. We have a business, and our business is to find energy and to produce that energy. The world requires energy. Um, but we want to do it in a way that's sustainable, that preserves the beauty of the natural environment for ourselves, for our children, for the communities that we work in. So that's what we're trying to balance as an industry and as a company. So we do think that what we're um, bringing to New Zealand will be done safely and will be done in an environmentally responsible manner, and the regulatory bodies will help us do that and make sure that we're doing that. But Jeff Burns from Helix Energy says New Zealand's isolation presents a special problem for petroleum companies 
and he wants to warn both the industry and the government to make sure they're prepared for a scenario similar to the Deepwater Horizon fiasco. Because of the reduced number of wells, we've got less infrastructure in place. So in the Macondo incident, um, they were able to utilise some of the infrastructure that was relatively close by uh, to respond to that incident. Uh, now they believe they can respond in a time period around 14 days to achieve what they achieved in 86 days uh, at the time due to preparing, preparing equipment and procedures and people. Um, and essentially the, the challenge we have in the regions such as New Zealand and Australia is because we've got less infrastructure, our preparation of equipment and people uh, needs more focus because there's less equipment uh, available to be used at short notice. David Cole is a partner in the legal firm Bell Gully. He says New Zealanders can take comfort that the regulatory and legal framework within which petroleum exploration is undertaken is robust enough to safeguard the environment. The rules are now more onerous than they used to be. Um, companies will you know, need to operate at the top of their game and be you know, very aware of the relevant requirements uh, to ensure that they are meeting those requirements and in fact exceeding them. And in that sense, um, my own view is that people should take comfort from that and that, that the standards and the requirements to which all companies now operating in New Zealand are higher and that should increase the comfort levels, particularly around uh, what is, I think, most concern to ordinary New Zealanders, which is uh, health, safety and environmental considerations. But for those opposed to the big oil companies, it doesn't matter how tight the regulatory system is. The recent changes to the Crown Minerals Act also included a clause excluding protest vessels from getting too close to offshore exploration activities. The 500-metre exclusion zone was, according to the Minister, set up for safety reasons. For protesters like Karen Trass, it was a cynical nod to the petroleum industry. I'm, I'm happy to protest at sea. I know that it's now illegal. I have no qualms in breaking that law. Uh, I may put myself at risk, but I see that this issue is a serious issue that will affect many generations to come. For Michael Bromwich, the man who revised the regulations controlling the US oil industry, the future looks similarly pragmatic in this country. You have to face the reality that you're never going to be able to squeeze all the risk out of it that you do what you can and you continue to try to upgrade the regulations that exist to make things safer and safer and safer, that you try to re continually raise the bar on safety and environmental protection. But that's not inconsistent with allowing uh, activity to move forward. And so that is what I sense is happening here uh, in New Zealand. Obviously, people here were gonna ha are going to have to work to figure out where in the middle the appropriate course is for this country. I think in the U.S., um, after the shock of Deepwater Horizon, we steered a different course, but one that still is very much in the middle of those two extremes. And I suspect that will be the long-term trajectory in the U.S., and that will likely be the trajectory here as well. While the choices made by any New Zealand government are ultimately determined by the ballot box, this government has for now nailed its colours firmly to the petroleum industry's mast, and despite the protests and the safety concerns, exploration is firmly on its agenda.
I'm Steve Wilde, and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that program. It was produced by Graham Acton.